Welcome to Listen on Purpose. I'm Carol Stern. I'm alongside my phenomenal co-host, Rachel Krauss. And today, we have the pleasure of speaking to a woman I have long admired, Carol Cohn, founder of Carol Cohn On Purpose, and a renowned leader in the world of corporate social responsibility, purpose-driven business. She's also the host of Purpose 360 podcast, showcasing the most innovative leaders in social purpose. And we are excited to spend some time with Carol today and really store insights on how business can leverage purpose to create some really meaningful impact. So welcome, Carol. Great to have you. Excited you're here. Well, I'm thrilled to be here, Carol, and also great to meet you, Rachel. Carol and I are friends for a long time. She is one of my heroes. Too long. You're a hero to me. <laughs> Carol Stern, you always have me. Oh, so. Thank you. So Carol, thank we're already friends because we have a mutual admiration. Yes. Of course. Terrific. So I know this past year has been a big year for you. You've won some amazing recognitions, you know, the Lifetime Achievement for Purpose from PR Week, a Barbara Hunter Trailblazer Award from New York PRSA. But I've known you for so many years. So Let's take the listener back. Start at the beginning. We want to understand how you got where you got. So a little bit about your journey. But this is always a tough question for people because they don't want to sound boastful or egotistical. I'm telling you, be boastful. I want to hear your successes. I want to hear your accolades. And then also tell us about the challenges. So the floor is yours, Carol Cohn. Tell us about yourself. Thank you, Carol, for asking that question. So I started linking companies and social issues in 1983. Now, I wasn't that old. <laughs> you know, I started really young, but kidding aside is that there were very few leaders at the time, people in marketing or in leading companies that truly thought that they could embrace a social issue to advance their business goals and such. One day, Bruce Cates, who was the CEO of the Rockport Shoe Company, showed up in my office. I was in Boston. It was myself and three other people. And he said, I want to build my company in a very different way. And AKA, I think he was saying, well, I don't really have a lot of money. And there were only $25 million. And for those of you who don't know Rockport's beginnings, Bruce's brilliance was he took a Nike inner and he put it in a street shoe outer. And it truly was great for walking, walking to work, walking on a trail, walking at a trade show. But nobody was talking about walking. If they were walking, they were like 90 years old and walking around the corner slowly. I said, okay, great. It was a big client and you know, we were only like a few years old. So we tried to do traditional marketing, taking his shoes to editors and such. And they went, no, no, no. They were just not attractive. So it took a long time to figure out what was the essence of that brand? What was the truth in that product? And Bruce was very different. We went to trade shows and he had these beautiful pictures of people walking in a field or walking in a city and such. And that gave me a lead. Could we stand for something much bigger? So all that was happening with me, this is my intuition. I am great about connection making. So he gave me the clue Here's a product which has great features. Here's some pictures about walking. So I did some research. 
you know, is anybody truly advancing the practice of walking? And no, it wasn't. Walking was old and walking needed a wholly new rebrand. It needed to be fresh. It needed to be young. It needed to be measured. It needed to be health related. And that's what we did. We had a fellow who walked around the country and he talked to kids. He walked 11,208 miles and it was Rob Freakall. He went into middle schools and he was very simple. And he had a fanny pack. This is so dated. Fanny pack slides. <laughs> And his shoes, and he had no idea where he was going to sleep at night. But he went into schools and he said, eat properly, don't smoke and walk. Very, very simple. He was like the Pied Piper of walking. And then we added the twist to it, which was we had a doctor from the University of Massachusetts Medical Center who truly studied him as a health study. And we flew Rob Sweetgold back to Boston eight times. He was studied in his health parameters. And then he would fly back to where he had left off and he would continue walking. We had to romance this thing because nobody believed that walking could be great for you. When we finished, we had a book, we had a film, we had a proclamation from the Health and Human Services, and we began to create momentum and to truly add real content and context to walking. It wasn't about Rockport. Rockport led with the issue of walking. They would then get the accolades because they were the catalyst for this. They started 25 million. This just was gangbusters. Once we finished the walk, we did a walking institute. We did a walking test. The walking test was launched on Good Morning America. We had over 100,000 handwritten requests for information. This was pre-internet. And then we started doing more science, more science, more science. We owned the content. We had cover stories, Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, on and on and on. Rockport then went into a retailer and said, there's a whole new category of shoes called walking shoes. Walking shoes became a billion dollar new category retail. Rockport had a book that we'd give away as a gift with purchase when you bought the shoes. They owned the whole category and it was amazing. And we had no idea what we were doing. It was just my intuition that they needed to stand for something that was honest and true and constantly add to the information. So that was the beginning of all of this. Then Reebok, unfortunately, bought Rockport. We did such good work that Paul Fireman said, I want to do that. He said, come down to Canton. I want to talk to you. And he had us and their ad agency, TBWA, brilliant ad agency. And Paul said, I want to do something. We're losing our edge. We need to get to young people. So he leaned over and he said to TBWA, well, what's your thinking? Well, we're going to recreate this incredible prisoners of conscience in a stadium. And we're going to have Sting and Peter Gabriel on the stage because it was the 40th anniversary, the Declaration of Human Rights. Because we were thinking about human rights could be something that we identified that young people were very concerned about. And this is late 80s. So then Paul said, well, Carol, what do you think? And basically we said, well, let us think about it. So we went back to the firm and we came up with an idea that had to be very authentic. Authentic was always part of my blood, the red corpuscles in my body about doing this work. And we basically did some research. We found out there was never, ever a recognition for young people under the age of 30 doing human rights work, ever. It was always the people who died or people who are really old. And so we went to Paul and we said, we want to have something that's going to have a long tail, not just the music tour, but something that Reebok, because here is the kicker, Amnesty International would not call it the Reebok anything. It was the Amnesty World Tour. You know, you get a little teeny, teeny, tiny. 
Reebok down in the corner. You couldn't see it. So we needed to come up with something that was totally authentic that Sting and Peter Gabriel and Bruce Springsteen would go, yes, it's not just slapping on a brand. It's somebody that's truly advancing a cause. And so we created the Reebok Human Rights Awards. And we had Senator Ted Kennedy and we had all these amazing people on our board because we truly were going to find young people under the age of 30, two in the U.S., two globally, that truly needed a light shown on them to really enhance their work. Then Reebok did it. Then Avon heard about us. And then we worked with their CEO, all CEOs who had vision and passion and ambition to do more for their company, their brands, and society. We created the Avon Breast Cancer Awareness Crusade. Again, working with CEOs, finding the essence of the brand, their assets. Avon had over 2 million associates that you could leverage, but what would you give them? And at the time, this is the 90s, people didn't talk about breast cancer. They didn't talk about breasts. I remember when we launched it and there was this amazing New York Times article with Varushka, who is, for those listening, she was one of the leading, leading models at the time and was very muted. She had had a mastectomy. Bringing breast cancer out of the darkness into the light wasn't about us. It wasn't about Avon, but Avon had a little piece in that very long feature story about what they were going to do to create awareness about breast cancer, about getting breast self-exams, getting mammograms, et cetera. And then they had a million, million ladies, mostly ladies, going out there and talking to their customers. I don't want to sell you something today. I want to talk about something that is likely very important to you. They went from being transactional to transformational. That was the beginning of all of this. So let's fast forward a little. Obviously, in the past couple of years, we have seen a number of companies that formerly were quiet jump on the bandwagon on a number of issues. I have my own thoughts of what the catalyst moment was, but let me hear your thoughts. What happened? Why are companies jumping on and is it sincere? Okay. So the first thing I want to say is that for 10 years, we're doing this work and everybody thought we were crazy. While, yes, I was kind of the darling and giving media interviews, we needed research to prove the power. One of the things that I did, and this was a seminal shift, it was in 1993, I partnered with Roper Starch Worldwide to do the first piece of comprehensive research about companies and social issues. It was called the Cohen Roper Report. And it was, okay, listen to this, a half an hour in-home interviews. It cost a fortune, but we worked it out with some pro bono work with Roper Stark. And we launched it in the New York Times with Stuart Elliott, and it was a huge article. And then all the business publications said, you can do what with a business? You can wrap yourself around a cause. That became the beginning of my love of research in addition to doing the work Every two years, we did a new piece of research. We've done 30 pieces of research, true, and then giving it out. And, you know, I talked to anybody who would listen, basically, whether it was big groups, little groups, or et cetera, sharing the research reports, because we needed to show that this was business strategy, that this mm -hmm. wasn't about philanthropy and ultimately is about tying and connecting with your employees first. So now let me get to your questions. I'm doing this, and then other firms, a couple of seminal moments. When the internet came along and companies became transparent, all of a sudden there was this, dare I say, oh shit moment, which is that we're making these claims. We're very female oriented or health oriented or such. Well, guess what? 
No, just because you gave money, made a donation or did a walk, that is not a deep and authentic commitment. That is not part of your brand and your ethos and your values. We kept giving this research out there. The internet caused a seminal moment of need. But I would say that two things happened. When Larry Fink, in his declaration, started talking about purpose. Now, there are many names for this. And so for your listeners, way back in the day, when I started, it was cause marketing. Then we called it, we named it cause branding in 1999. Then it was called Triple Bottom Line and CSR and Corporate Responsibility, Corporate Citizenship, lots of names. In mid-2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, the name Purpose started coming up. And Purpose means something different, by the way. It means what an organization stands for at its highest level beyond just making a profit. How is it engaging with humanity? How is it engaging with the environment and such? We call it purpose. Larry Fink, this trillion dollar BlackRock, he's leading it, et cetera. And he said, no company is going to be successful. This was about 20, I think 19, unless they understand their purpose. Because the purpose is a gold thread. It aligns. It is about value creation in the organization beyond a product or a service. So Larry Fink, I would say you got to give him a ton of credit, a ton of credit. Then you have the business roundtable. And that is the Trade Association for CEOs. It's about 210 CEOs, leaders in this country. And the Business Roundtable wrote in 2018 the declaration that we are about all stakeholders, not just shareholders. Those were two significant business points in time that all of a sudden took purpose or whatever you call it and made it embedded into corporate, the top three or four things a CEO and C-suite needed to focus on and then deliver. Now, there's a big schism between stated purpose and activated purpose. Cal, I know we fast forwarded a little bit, and I actually want to see if we can rewind again also. Sure. Pre-Rockport, you mentioned intuition, that idea of like finding essence and being able to hone in on what we later called purpose or redefined as purpose, but really early on. Are there parts of your upbringing? What helped influence that in you? Was that innate? Was that developed? Was that calibrated? Talk to us about where that comes from for you. Sure. Thank you, Rachel, for that question. One of my favorite interview questions, and I'm going to give it to everyone listening to your podcast because there's two really great, great questions. So what's the most important thing you learned from your mother? And what's the most important thing you learned from your father? Because the apple usually does not fall really far from the tree. I grew up, my parents were very liberal. They were artists-oriented. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. So we're watching the Vietnam War every night on television. Remember, the only three channels, guys, in those days. So you're watching the horrors of the Vietnam War. Then you're seeing the horrors of the civil rights movement. And then I go to an activist university. I go to Brandeis University. There was something historically called the Year of the Student Strike. Students basically decided that they were going to take over buildings. And basically, I say, yes, I took over buildings. Yes, I marched on Washington. I didn't burn any buildings. But I was very much part of that whole activist environment at Brandeis. Brandeis was created because Jews were not given the opportunity for higher level education at the time. A lot of anti-Semitism then, as there is tremendous now. 
Also, underrepresented Blacks were not given a place to go. So Brandeis was very liberal on both counts. That's what truly impacted me. And I wasn't hard, hard, hardcore radical, but the apple didn't fall far from the tree. My mother's very creative. She was a third-generation entrepreneur. She had the first off-Broadway theater. So all of these things came together, and I wanted to trial when I started my company way back when, when I was very young, to just do something better and different. I was in Boston. The other thing is that I'm a New Yorker by breeding. So I am like aggressive and excited and you can see and passionate. And Boston's very, very reserved. I created this firm in Boston that was very, whoa, who is this person? What is she doing? What is this thing called cause marketing, cause branding during those years? First of all, I love your story. It's God, you're a New Yorker. Who knew? <laughs> And I love the two questions. I often talk about the influence of my mother in particular, but both of my parents on who I am and what I've become. And I'd like to believe I've had influence on my own children. As I started to ask you, you know, before we jump backwards a little, there's been a change. There's been a change in the expectations of the public for what corporate leaders, never mind the corporation themselves, expectations of where they stand on political issues, where they stand on social problems, what do you see as what drove that change? What drove that change? Well, one, I'll go back to the internet. The transparency of information, one. Two, young people, especially now Gen Z and younger, they have different expectations because they have agency with their wallet. They have agency with their voice and they have agency where they're going to work. There was this shift. I hope that some of my work and research and programs did help to create the shift. I did a little bit of historical review of other organizations. I've been credited with creating the walking movement and the early childhood education movement and the cause movement, the breast cancer movement. A movement doesn't happen by just me alone. It happens by others jumping in. So Avon and Coleman, that's what created the breast cancer movement. And we were just one prong of that. But here's a really interesting historical thing. Net Impact, which came out of Business for Social Responsibility, was the association on college campuses for students who believed in more for business. That was founded in 1993. BSR, Business for Social Responsibility, and I was one of the founding members, 92. Let's just see some others. Fortune Most Admired list, which had eight my God, there was one little teeny tiny area that was social responsibility of the eight elements, 1997. But Fortune then changed the world list 2015. So things were changing. Just 100, which I adore Just Capital, that's an organization that truly they've done hundreds of thousands of interviews with people like us. What do you expect in a just business? How they treat their employees, one, two, three, four, five, the environment, society, salaries, et cetera. They were formed in 2014. And the committee and CECP, which was founded by Paul Newman in 1999 and John Whitehead from Goldman. So you had a celebrity, a philanthropist, and a financier. They, for 20 years, and I was always, from the minute I heard about them, I was on their doorstep. And I was a judge for them, and I spoke at their conferences, and I just love them. In 2019, on their 20th anniversary, they changed their name, CCP, to Chief Executives for Corporate Purpose. The CCP originally was Committee to Invest in Corporate Philanthropy. 
So from philanthropy to purpose over 20 years. I show you that, and it's just fascinating to see those organizations had an influence on business as Larry Fink as the business roundtable and such. And then in our society, you look at what's happening in climate and you cannot miss it no matter whether it's a forest fire or tornado, whether it's floods and such, hurricanes, whatever. You can't miss that. And then you look at what happened with George Floyd. There's so many things. The other unlock was truly social media, the internet and then social media, because everybody had a megaphone. The influence and impact on CEOs. And then you have a new generation of CEOs as well. They're a little bit younger. They're the next gen. They have children who are asking them at the dinner table, hey, dad, hey, mom, what are you doing about this? You're also getting at more diversity and more women who are more empathetic. And also it's the loss of command and control. That's the other thing that happened that a CEO cannot just, I expect this and you will do it. Well, guess what? Your employees are saying, no, 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 no. If you want the best and brightest, especially in technology, they can go anywhere now. And especially now in a hybrid work world. So all of those things are a confluence of change. And I didn't even answer about the tough issues yet, because that's a whole nother issue. Part of it also was our research. We did the B2B purpose paradox in 2020. We did purpose under pressure. I suggest any of your listeners go to our website. All of that is free and available to see the demands of young people. And I will tell you that in our purpose under pressure, which was done right after COVID, because we wanted to see how employees felt, that 91% said, gosh, I feel safer because my company has a clear purpose because the world out there is scary. 86% said our purpose gives us well executed and authentic. And we can get into that. Our purpose gives me belonging and meaning because you know what? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, Hey, I want to make money for the CEO. Isn't that exciting? Maybe the CFO says that. <laughs> Maybe some business leaders, but everybody else goes, well, shit, if I'm going to give you my time, especially after COVID and I'm now going back to work and I'm leaving my kids and my dogs and my kitty cats and whatever, this better make sense. It better give me psychic rewards. So given all of that, though, then why do you think there are some companies that aren't opting in? Why are some companies not addressing CSR at all? I think they're in the minority by certain laws, there's certain regulations that they have to fulfill. I think that command and control and just making a profit, you're not going to win. You may win in the short term. You may have an incredibly amazing product that the world has to have. World has to have Apple or NVIDIA. But CEOs get it. If they only get it about recruiting and retaining the best, that's okay. Because if they don't have the best talent, they will not win in the marketplace. Any company that is truly only about the profits, they're not going to win. They're not going to win. So you mentioned also authentic belonging and meaning. And those are words that are certainly pervasive in people's personal lives, professional lives. Can you talk more about that? Sure. First of all, thank you, Merriam-Webster. 
about a couple weeks ago, their word of the year. God, the year before was gaslighting, so I don't know about that. But this year, it was authentic. We're improving. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Not COVID. I saw it in my newsfeed right early in the morning. The funniest thing is that I went to chat GPT and I said, okay, write me a blog about it. And she actually wrote a pretty good blog, but I said, well, I can't use chat GPT. So we actually went back and wrote it. Just ran in sustainable brands and I can give it to you as a link. Please. I've been talking about authenticity for a long time because when you find your purpose, I always say it can't be laminated. It can't be on a wall as a plaque. It must be lived. And the challenge now is how do you bring it to life? And how do you bring it to life and not marginalize it? And the very sad thing that's happening right now in DEI is that the pledges that were made, about 82% of companies in the US made a pledge about becoming more diverse and such, that a year ago, when there was analysis of are those pledges being fulfilled, most weren't. And then now that we have the tech layoffs, and we have some right-sizing of organizations that hired too much during COVID, DE&I leaders are being quietly let go. That's a very disturbing situation that's happening right now because you serve a diverse audience. As a country, dare I say, Caucasians will be less than 50% of our population. Companies that want to have the greatest thinking, that they want to have the sensitivity and products and services that appeal to who is in the population, they've got to be diverse. So interesting challenges right now. One of the things that we're looking at at Lion Tree, and obviously the mantra of my job, is the intersection of purpose and profit. Historically, philanthropy has sat here and profit has sat right. here. And it speaks to what you said happened with DE&I. Great foundation gifts and pledges but not tied to the product and not tied to the business imperatives, with some exceptions. You know, you have like Verizon, their five-year strategy, there is a whole thing on its impact on society, et cetera. So we are really examining that and not necessarily in the vein of impact investing, but true investing, mm -hmm. true products that are solving social problems. Right. Do you see that as a route? Do you see that as the right way to be going? Well, I think if you're going to have sustained and deep commitment to purpose, you have got to embed it into your business strategy. We talked about employees ad nauseum, and you want the best and the brightest. So it's got to be for recruit. You'd be amazed. When we were working with ConAgra in the late 90s, young people started coming into HR saying, what do you stand for? That was like really early. Now it's like the first or second question. And how can I get involved? Part of it is innovation, to your point, and tying into whether it's supply chain and sourcing, whether it's new products and services. I'll give you a great, great example. Timberland has made an investment in Haiti. And to bring cotton farming back to Haiti, because it was now, mm -hmm. and they worked with the government and they worked with NGOs and such, and they taught smallholder farmers how to farm cotton. And then Timberland took the cotton as product, as material mm -hmm. to make some of their products. And then they would sell the products. And of course, they would communicate that these products were made of that. So it was a virtuous circle of they've innovated something that was needed that was true to their product line and the ethos of the Timberland brand. So that is just one great example. But I love that one. 
No, it's a great example. I know I've spent some time recently looking at the hospitality industry and its adaptation to enabling people with disabilities to be participative in travel. Some of the products and services, and especially in the technology areas that are coming out, are phenomenal. I mean, I think they're going to be hugely successful investments. Yes. Can I give you another example, which was one that is coming out of Tapestry, and Tapestry owns Coach, Stuart Weitzman, and others. Coach is a very young brand. And so to the brilliance, brilliance of Coach and Tapestry, they decided to do circular economy and to create products of recycled leather that they would get back. But here's what they did. And this is brilliant. They created a committee of Gen Zers. They put out the words on the internet, the word, and said, hey, join us in what's the product that we need? How might we talk about it, et cetera? And they created this thing called Coachtopia. They took all these young people to bring what does circularity look like? What are the types of products and services? What's the language? What's the ethos? And it is absolutely brilliant. The line is sold out twice already, and it connects coach, takes them to the next generation. It takes what would have been discarded ends of leather and et cetera, and also how they design it and how they manufacture it. So the least amount of excess and the most amount of circularity. It's brilliant. It is brilliant. I really like it. it. I like it a lot. And I guess that speaks to the investor who's listening. What's the question they ought to be asking with regard to Well, they should ask, does my purpose and embedding it create value? Is it value creation? How is it getting me better supply? First of all, there's risk mitigation. If we're chocolate, and we love Tony's Chocoloni, right? We are sourcing our chocolate from child labor-free resources. And we can tell a wonderful story about how we're investing in those smallholder farmers. They probably don't remember this, but the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, part of the genesis was when orangutans, people dressed up as orangutans, were climbing the fence at Unilever. And this is before Paul Pullman got there. But it went around the globe in terms of attacking Unilever. You know, you're cutting down the rainforest, and that's the home for these orangutans. And that was way before Paul Pullman said, I'm going to reinvent this company to be about helping people understand how to live sustainably. Amazing background. What do you say to investors? There's a lot of proof. There's a lot of data, not just ours, whether it's from Just Capital, whether it's from CCP, whether it's from others that say companies that are better run, that manage their risk better, have better results. But the challenge that we all have is the quarterly pounding of earnings on Wall Street. We love Paul Pullman. He's got the B team and all the things he's doing now. Early on, he said to Wall Street and the street, if you don't like my earnings or what's happening, don't follow me. Don't buy me. Now, that's very, very courageous. That's gutsy. It's very right? gutsy. Most people aren't like Paul Pullman. is my hero. I've had nice too. for 360. I adore the man. His book is great. Net positive. Everybody reads his book. The world of business is shifting so dramatically, and command and control doesn't work, and you need the innovation to own your category. And then, you know, being strategic. We're not about writing checks. We're about investing in the future. At the top of the podcast, you touched on 
the idea of inside outside. You talk about Nike on the inside and walking shoe on the outside, almost as a metaphor, how that sets up the way this industry is evolving and investing in the future. Just because you touched on that, there's like such a beautiful visualization of what the inner work looks like in terms of establishing mm. purpose, permeating that throughout the culture. Gen Z, you mentioned having a sense of meaning, belonging, and then how that then is represented in the outsides. You just mentioned that. So I was thinking about the symbolism and the metaphor about how the top of your career really established almost the trajectory of how this can continue to impact the world moving forward. Absolutely. Carol, to your point, I want to just make another story, a case about Wall Street and impact. Aflac came to us in 2017 and they said, we have this incredible Aflac doc, Aflac, you know, he's worth billions <laughs> on the balance sheet. He's very funny, but what else does he do? They also quietly gave over 135 million to pediatric cancer, especially they created a cancer center in Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Basically, my superpower is connection making. I was having lunch with one of my purpose collaborative partners, which is a group of 45 agencies we brought together that have purpose at the center so we can expand and contract and create dream teams for our clients. I was talking to Aaron and Aaron makes social robots for kids with diseases. And he said, well, here's what we're doing with Jerry the Bear, et cetera, et cetera. And he turned to me and said, Carol, what's going on with you? And I went, we're going to start working with Aflac. And in one second, my superpower kicks in and boom, over the top of my head, a social robot collides with the Aflac duck, boom, over my head, stars, stripes, whatever, over my head, confetti. You couldn't see it, but I could. Basically, I turned to Aaron. He goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? You look so, what did you get scared? I know. And I smiled. And I said, we're going to create a social robot for Aflac. And we did. Using Aaron's incredible background, you know, we studied kids and their needs. Kids go through a thousand days of treatments who are going through pediatric cancer. It is really dreadful and horrible for them. They lose all their agency. They're sick. They lose all their routines. And we studied them for about a year. They're doctors, their kids, their caregivers, so that we shaped this little social robot the way children wanted it. It was co-created. It gave them agency. And basically, they wanted something little, and they wanted something soft, and they wanted a duck that purred. Purred? Purr? Okay, fine. Cats, ducks, whatever. But we also gave it feelings. It has three motors and patents pending and such, but inside it has an emoji you can put on its chest because it's three, five, seven-year-old child. They revert to very young when they're being treated, and they cannot communicate. We wanted to use the duck to help them communicate and to feel that they had a comforting companion. There are seven emojis. You put the happy emoji on its chest and the duck goes, quack, quack, quack. You put the sad emoji that's got a green emoji and it goes, quack, quack, quack. Aflac said we loved it. Their CEO said it's the best idea I ever heard. We introduced it at the Consumer Electronics Show. God, that's kind of weird. They're the best cars and phones and refrigerators, we introduced this little teeny tiny duck. It stole the show. It had 2 billion impressions about what it was. It tied beautifully to Aflac. We won Tech for a Better World going into that show. That's how we got the 2 billion impressions and such. But it also had an impact on, because we measured this, impact on employee pride, pre and post, through the roof. Impact on their reputation, their rep track scores went up three points. Impact on potential purchasers of Aflac products 
15% of the national adult population knew about this based on media relations, not ads. And almost 100% said they would be open to buying an Aflac product. Their stock went up for a few points when this was just introduced. Now, the point is they give him away or her. They give him away to kids. It costs about $250 landed. But the kids, the hospitals, they've gone all across the country, also in Japan, which is where their major business actually is. But it had an impact on the business, their ethos, every single parameter in their business it had an impact on. Long story, but it's really, really important because the innovation that a purpose, when you bring it internally to innovation and employees, as well as your supply chain partners, you can do extraordinary things. That's a great place, I think, to wrap us up. So as you know, we always end our podcast asking for a gift for our listeners. So what do you want to add to our swag bag? Well, I would say that you need to be courageous and persistent when you are pitching, because you're probably not a CEO listening. You're probably in the organization or you're in your career and you truly want to do this work. So the first thing I'm going to say is that you need to show that this is strategic and powerful. So I would say read some books. Read Net Positive from Paul Pullman. Read Tomorrow's Capitalist from Alan Murray, the CEO of Fortune Media. Read At the Heart of Business by Hubert Jolie, who turned around Best Buy from almost in bankruptcy to truly thriving incredibly. Read that. Listen to my podcast. You need to be a great student to get both the melody and the numbers to pitch, to make the case to your C-suite to do this work in great depth. You got to be well-educated, not just passionate. The passion alone won't work. You got to have the numbers because this is about business strategy, brand strategy, ethos, values, behaviors, and such. Amazing. Great gift. I love it. Rachel, any last thoughts before we wrap? No, that was amazingly uplifting. I love the idea of numbers and melody. That's the conflation of both. Stay educated and and be courageous. Be courageous. Be courageous and, courageous and relentless. Don't give up. This is the way business has to go forward. Well, I think you have hit the mark on everything we hoped, Carol. Not that I'm at all surprised. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for the gift. And thank you for the reading list. We're excited. Oh, uh, well, great. I love what you're doing. I've always loved what you're doing. And you guys are doing an amazing job. It's many of our voices that will change the trajectory of business strategy and social impact. Thanks so much for joining us. Listen on Purpose is a series as part of Kindred Cast from Kindred Media and Audiation with the phenomenal music by Rachel's 10-year-old son, Noam Krauss. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to Kindred Cast wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review letting us know what you think. We are your hosts, Rachel Krauss and Carol Stern. Thank you for listening and find your purpose. <laughs>